Welcome to New City Church. This is Matt Freeman, and we are so thankful you are studying the Word of God with us. Jesus founded New City after our forever home, the New Jerusalem from Revelation 21. He wrote our mission statement to foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride looking for Jesus' return. Let's lean completely on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us all things from 1 John 2.27. God is so eager to teach you the depth of his word. Enjoy the study. Okay, this is going to be pretty fun. So we've we've been going through Hebrews, and chapter 2 is just so rich with information on, we talked a lot about in chapter 1, Jesus' superiority to the angels, and then how he's a God-man better than the angels, chapter 1 and 2. And last time, two weeks ago when I was here, we were talking about him being the conquering and creating king, and now because of that, the earth is subject to him as a result of that, which is really a unique concept that starts all the way back in Genesis. So we're going to look at, kind of go all over the Bible a little bit today, but just as a reminder as we dive back in, our guiding verses here through Hebrews, 1 John 2.27 and 28 that the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you all things, and is truth, and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And that's the key. So if we're leaning on the anointing of the Holy Spirit to teach us everything in the Bible, in the Word of God, We're doing that so that we can deepen our relationship with him and not be ashamed when he appears. So there's a connection there to the rapture when he appears to bring us home. And that's how we foster, strengthen, and grow an unashamed bride for Jesus' return, which is the the mission statement he gave us here for the church so long ago. Can you hear this one, Austin? So the outline... Okay, Jesus says, the new and superior deliverer, chapters 1 through 7. So a God-man better than the angels, the first two chapters. We're still there in that section, and of 13 chapters, hopefully we'll get through this before the rapture. This may take as, <laughs> this may take as long as the book of Revelation. We spent a year in Revelation. I thought we'd spend, you know, four months or five months in Hebrews, but it's, it could be longer than that. It's okay, though. This is, it's really deep. So we're still there at the beginning. But the whole book is centered around these five warnings. And we covered the first one two weeks ago, the danger of drifting and holding on and clinging to the feet of Jesus in everything you do in your walk. And so these five warnings, danger of drifting, hardening the heart, failing to mature, willful sin, and refusing him, they all build off each other, leading ultimately to apostasy. That's the point, is that it's a progression It's a slow progression to grow away from Jesus. It's not something, when you're really in him, it's not something that happens just overnight. You just don't wake up and decide, well, I'm going to stop obeying Jesus. No, it's a a product of getting off a little bit by Satan. He deceives, he twists the word of God, he gets you to believe something, just a little bit of a lie, and you start to drift. You start to drift away, and eventually you end up so far off course that you don't even know what's truth anymore in God's word. And so it ultimately culminates with that apostasy. And the book of Jude has much to say about that. We studied that in men's Bible study a while back. 
But Revelation gives that outcome in chapter 3, verse 16. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. And that's, that's how Jesus feels about lukewarm believers. He, he does not take kindly to those that have taken his name in vain, where they've taken his name and done literally nothing with it. He, he has a stern warning. He wants nothing to do with that kind of relationship. He wishes you were cold or hot because then he can work with you somehow. But when you're lukewarm and you're just indifferent, as many of you know that have kids, when they're just kind of indifferent to things, it's hard to teach and coach them to, to move, right? Because they just don't take any action on their own. But God gives the warning to encourage us to press on and obtain our inheritance. And we talked a lot about that last time in chapter, the first four verses with the danger of drifting. But the warnings are in place because God's longing for this deep relationship. And that's what Hebrews is all about, is this deep relationship with God that he wants you to have that is built on his word. And so do not let your grip on Jesus slip. You need to stay steadfast and cling to him. And it is a challenge. It's not, I love how Isaiah puts it, you shall run and not faint. You shall walk and not grow weary. It's a pattern because when you first get in the Lord and you're excited about it, you are sprinting and you're running and you're excited. You have all this adrenaline of being with the Lord, but then the challenge is to walk, to walk with him in a long life of service to the Lord. The walking is the hard part. The walking is where people wear down because they're wondering and they're going and they're going and they're going. And finally, the, the enemy just gets them off course a little bit. But the book is built on those five warnings because a kingdom is at hand. And, you know, it's something when you really look around about what's going on in the world all over the place from Canada, Australia, Ukraine, Russia, Europe, everything. I don't know about you guys, but I am ready for a righteous king to reign and rule and for us to have fellowship on this earth together with Jesus ruling in Jerusalem. There is no greater promise in my mind for us as believers than a future kingdom that is at hand. And it's amazing that that theme is all over the Bible. And so again, will you start to drift away and lose what is at stake? And what's at stake is not your salvation. We talked, we hammered that two weeks ago. It is your inheritance in that kingdom. That is what is at stake if you are saved because you can't lose your salvation, but you can blow your inheritance. And that's what the kingdom is all about for Hebrews. So the kingdom that Jesus is to set up, it's again, it's laced throughout the entire Bible. It's a central theme from cover to cover. First Corinthians 15, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet, but when he saith all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is expected, which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. He's speaking of the Father, that God may be all in all. But look at that, the end, when the kingdom is delivered up to God, that's the end of the millennium. Jesus is going to work on this kingdom for a thousand years. It's going to take him that long to get everything in subjection under his feet and to root that out. We studied, and when we were going through Revelation, we studied really so much in the Bible about the kingdom, 
how there's, there's death, there's still sin during the millennium, but it's judged immediately. And it's a really fruitful study to look at what, what the word of God has to say about that. So if you weren't here for that, go back and check that out. But the kingdom is the world to come in the, our first verse today in Hebrews 2.5. The kingdom will be when the Father has put all things in subjection under his feet, in verse 8. The kingdom focus is what is at hand. Thy kingdom come. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the millennial reign of Christ, as promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, it's promised to Mary in Luke 1, it's confirmed all throughout Revelation. And the point is that you have a place waiting for you if you're in Christ. That's the point something to look forward to. And just as a quick reminder, Jesus is pleading with us in Revelation 3, verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. And he's talking about your inheritance, your rewards. You have something that can be lost, and it's not your salvation. That no man take thy crown. You have something right now laid up for you that you can lose. And you don't even know you have it. A lot of Christians don't even know it's there waiting for them. But again, it's this whole concept of when I was growing up in church, well, okay, you're a believer. That's great. Now, what do you do with it? Nobody even asked that question. And I remember my whole life just going, thinking through, so I'm going to live every way I can according to the word of God. And at the end of the day, I'm going to get to the same place as this guy who got saved and then went totally off the rails and did anything he wanted with his life, contrary to God's word, and we're all going to end up at the same place, you know, at the same time, doing the same thing. It just, it never set well with me until I understood all of this with the inheritance and the rewards piece, that there's a cost for not living for the Lord. And it has nothing to do with your eternity. It has everything to do with your place in it. So the entire book of Hebrews, again, it's written to the believer It's not a book on how and why you should get saved. It's a book for us who are born again on why we should run the race. If you remember, the original recipients were Christians. Each warning substantiates that fact. And were the people addressed saved or unsaved? As you read the whole book, that's kind of the question at the root of it. Were the people addressed saved or unsaved? And over 20 times in the book, the author, the Holy Spirit, uses to write the message. He includes himself in the warnings says, we, let us, we, it's always plural. So Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. So God does not urge unsaved people to cling to a false profession. And in Hebrews 10, you can see that in verse 23, hold fast that profession. So throughout the New Testament, look at this, God pleads with us to press on. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize. So run that ye may obtain, and every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. There's one of the crowns we talked about two weeks ago. I therefore so run, not as uncertainty, uncertainly, so fight I not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. And so there's this race that we're all running, run all, but one receives the prize. And this, is, this, this concept is all over the New Testament when you really search this out. Philippians 3, 
Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Now, that's interesting. Remember how Jesus said, no man that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom? That's what he's talking about. He's striving forward. You're not supposed to dwell and look back on everything. You see that same thing with Lot and his wife when she looked back and became a pillar of salt. That concept's all the way back in Sodom and Gomorrah. But you're not to look back. The enemy wants you looking back. God wants you looking forward. That's the difference. The enemy wants you looking back to constantly be reminded of, well, I'm not really fit for that because of, and you fill in the blank, you know, whatever from your past. And God does not want that. He wants you looking forward to what he has for you. That's the point. And reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Pressing on. 2 Timothy 4, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. Do you see, see the theme and the tone? I fought. I ran. I, I raced. I clung to Jesus. I ran hard this race that he laid out before me. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. So there's that crown that's tied again to the rapture. If you're looking for and longing for the appearing of Jesus Christ, there's a crown laid up for you, the crown of righteousness. Hebrews 12.1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about, with such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Again, running with patience, running with patience. So the first verse for today, for unto the angels hath he, put, hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. So the world to come, this is, this is all about the kingdom. The word for world here in the Greek is uh, okomini, which literally means the inhabited earth. That's what it means. The world which is to come, the inhabited earth which is to come. It's different than the cosmos. So in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That word in the Greek is cosmos, and it literally means the inhabitants of the earth. So it's, it's not the place, it's the people. Do you see the difference? And so here in Hebrews 2.5, he's put the place in subjection that is to come. The place is the inhabited millennial reign of Christ, the world. He's put that in subjection to Jesus. In John 3.16, he, gave, he so loved the inhabitants of that place. So in the English, you kind of miss that because we translated both Greek words as world, but that's the difference. I love the the definition, the inhabitants of the earth, the human family, the ungodly multitude, the whole mass of men alienated from God and therefore hostile to the cause of Christ. That's one of the definitions for the world, the word cosmos. The word for world here, it refers to the earth in the millennial kingdom. That's the point. In Hebrews 2.5, it is the millennium. And Jesus has much to say about this world that is yet future. In Matthew 19, Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging 
the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold. Do you see the, the concept here of reaping and sowing and a reward that's waiting for you? Receive a hundredfold and shall inherit. There's that word, inherit, everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. You know, there's a lot of people in the world serving, serving Jesus right now in, the, in a mighty way that you have never even heard of, that I've never heard of, that the a vast majority of the world may not even know about. And what's amazing is Jesus is saying, the last shall be first. Those people that have humbly served him for so long in doing things that you never even hear about or know of, it may just be the simplest thing. Obedience, you know, is the key. And being obedient to the Lord in that way, there's a great place in store for them. And so don't, what I want to encourage you with is you don't have to be a, a Billy Graham and fill football stadiums with 100,000 people to have a place in God's kingdom. You could be the lowest of low in this from the world's eyes, and he does not miss that. He sees that. He knows your place. And if you're just being obedient to what he called you to do, that's all he asks for. Let him worry about the rest. Just be obedient. And I, I saw my wife turn around and grab my mother-in-law's hand. I was thinking about Billy a minute ago because she has been a, a cook at a church for in down in Lawton for 25 plus years. And when the shutdown happened, she opened her kitchen and fed hundreds of homeless people. And you know, you don't hear about stuff like that, but she's obedient. She's just obedient in serving the Lord in that way. And she feels it's her ministry. She cooks uh, spaghetti for the football team every week before their, the Lawton High football team before their Friday night game and just loves it. She loves on those boys, those teenagers and shares the gospel with them. And what an amazing, amazing legacy, you know, of someone doing something so simple, but with absolute passion for the Lord. And it's, it's amazing. It's such a blessing, Billy, really. It's such a huge blessing to those, those people down there. But the current role of angels will be superseded by those that rule with Jesus in the millennium. So you think about angels right now. We will rule with Jesus. Look at Daniel 7, 9, Revelation 4, 4, the thrones of the 24 elders. We will rule with Jesus if you press on. That's the point. And we will judge the angels. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 3, know ye not that we shall judge angels how much more the things that pertain to this life. You know, I haven't judged any angels yet, and I don't think anyone in this room has but you will. You're, there's going to come a point where you who are made a little lower than the angels supersede them and will judge them. And that's a pretty radical thought to think about because they right now are watching you to learn about God. In Revelation 21, 7, he that overcometh shall inherit all things and I will be his God and he shall be my son, which is amazing. So during the kingdom reign, the earth will be subject to us if we press on toward Jesus. The Holy Spirit's not saying the world was never in subjection to the angels, but the world to come will not be in subjection to them. Do you see the difference? And so there is some evidence. If you go back after we finished Revelation, we did that, that two-part study that the Lord titled Let There Be War. If you remember Let There Be War Part 1, 
that war between God and the angels between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, there's a lot of evidence that the earth was subject to them at some point. From Joel or Job, I'm sorry, when they cheered when the earth was created and then they rebelled, there was a judgment from Jeremiah 4. The earth set desolate for eons. And it also explains why Lucifer is against Adam in the very beginning of it all when he creates man. And we're going to look at that in Psalms 8 here later today. So press on to receive the reward of the inheritance. Look at that, Colossians 3.23. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. See, anything that God calls you to do, he wants you to do in his strength and for him, not for man's approval, not for man's accolades, not for man's, not for man, period. Just, you can't put it any simpler than that. And I'll never forget, I think I've shared this with some of you in here, but in 2000 and, it was, let's see, it was 2013, um, I'll never forget this. It was a absolute turning point in my life. I was working on this mega project. It didn't really matter what it was, but there's a huge project I was working on. And a guy that I was working with um, got the praise in a newsletter for this job, for this big project we were doing. And, and I was really frustrated by it. This was almost a decade ago now. But I was really frustrated by it. And it was one Friday evening. I was in our bedroom, and, and we were living in Kansas City at the time. And I was sitting there just talking to the Lord about it. I was like, God, what, is, what am I doing here? Why am I killing myself on this thing? And the CEO is recognizing this other person and not me. And the Lord just answered. He, he changed my life with one question to me. His, his question to me was, are you working for the praise of man? That was it. That was his only question. And from that point on, I, I, he just hit home so heavy of no, I am not. I'm sorry. I should not have been so upset about this other person getting the accolades for something that I have spent weeks and months away from my family doing. It was, I was, my perspective was off. And so he just corrected it right then. So if you have, if you have issues with that in your own life, take it to him. That's the key. Take it to him and ask him what, what changed my heart, changed my perspective. Give me the Lord Give me your perspective on who I'm serving and why I'm doing what I'm doing. So whatever, whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men, knowing that of the Lord ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. But he that doeth wrong shall receive for the wrong which he hath done. That's a promise that I think a lot of us want to hold on to right now in this world. And there's no respect of persons. So don't forget, judgment always begins at the house of God. And when you study this throughout the Bible, you'll see constantly that God's people are the ones that judgment hits first. You know, Babylon wasn't judged first. Israel was. God used Babylon as an instrument of judgment on Israel and took them into captivity. Then Babylon got judged. And that pattern is all over the Bible. But 1 Peter 4 hits it home. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if at first it begin with us, at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? In other words, if we're the ones that get judged first and we receive it from the Lord and we're in him, how much more are those going to receive the judgment that are not in him? 
You know, that's kind of the question that God is stating there. So dominion of the earth was given to man in Genesis. If you look at this back in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have dominion over everything in the earth, the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. So God gives dominion of the earth at the very beginning of it all to man. So you could argue one way or the other, did the angels have dominion or was it just the place of their habitation between Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2? That's a question. You could, you could make the argument that they had dominion over the earth and it was lost and then Satan regained it when Adam willfully joined Eve. But dominion... Adam lost dominion of the earth when he willingly joined her. That's, that is true. And Revelation 4 and 5, when Jesus comes back to take the title deed of the earth, when we looked at that, that is Jesus taking back what he rightfully paid for on the cross. So you may not have physical dominion right now, but a question I want all of you to think about is, do you have spiritual dominion of the earth? You do have spiritual authority, so if you are in Jesus and you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you have authority over anything the enemy is trying to do. You have authority over it by the word of God and by speaking the name of Jesus. You have absolute authority in any room you are in, no matter who's in that room. So don't forget that. But I love the verse in Matthew 17, 20, when Jesus talks about moving the mountains. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you could tell that mountain to go into the sea and it would move. It's you can take dominion with the word of God. That's the point. So God now addresses two objections to the fact that Jesus is above the angels. So if you think about this from a Jewish perspective, if Christ is above the angels, yet he became a man, which is lower than the angels, how can he still be higher than the angels while in the form of a man? So it's kind of a circular thought that the Jewish people are thinking and wanting to argue about. The second one, the second issue is that Christ died, so how can that make him better than the angels who are immortal and never die? See, angels don't perish, but they can't be redeemed because Jesus was not, he didn't die for them. They're not made in his image. We are. So they have no, there's no redemption for them available from Jesus's sacrifice. So the Holy Spirit will demonstrate that it is his humiliation and suffering, which is the cause of his exaltation and glory. That's in these final verses. His inheritance is in place because of his willingness to lower himself. So Jesus, the creator and conquering king, he allowed himself to be murdered on our behalf. And because of that, he's exalted above them. And it's, we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the slides, but I want you to keep in mind it was second degree murder, specifically on the cross. And Jesus declares that when he says, forgive them for they know not what they do. There's a really important statement there to that that we're going to hit on here later. So verse six, but one in a certain place testified saying, what is man that thou art mindful of him or the son of man that thou visitest him? So the final three verses, six through eight, they're all quoted from Psalms eight, four through six, those three verses in Psalms eight. The reference here to son of man is not talking about Adam because he was a son of God, a direct creation of God, not an offspring of man. And that's an important distinction. 
and it's confirmed in Luke's genealogy of Jesus. Look at Luke 3.38, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. See, Adam was a direct creation of God. He was not the offspring of man. And, there's, and that's important for verse 6. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? He's speaking of Jesus here, not Adam. That's the, the point. The Lord uses the last Adam as a title of Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. This is one of my favorite titles of Jesus. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. That's Jesus. That's a title of Jesus. So dominion was given to the first Adam, lost by him, and dominion will be taken back by the last Adam. Dominion restored eventually. But we're going to see in a second, it's not quite there yet. So it's one of many reasons you must be born again. Think about this. You are an offspring of man, not a direct creation of God, if you think about it. Yes, you are fearfully and wonderfully made and and crafted in the womb by God, but you and I are an offspring of man. We're all descendants of Adam until you're born again. In John 1, 12, but as many received him to them, gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. See, God gives you the power to become the son of God. That means when you are born again, you're no longer a son of Carrie and Richard Freeman from Lawton, Oklahoma. You are a son of God then. You're born again. And there's something so radical in the spirit that happens when you get born again. I, I'm hoping when we get to heaven that God gives us a glimpse of that transition on what happened on the spiritual side. When you get saved and you're born again, there is something radical that happens in the universe. And it's not just this, okay, I I get filled with the Holy Spirit. You are radically changed spiritually, immediately. And that is amazing when you think about it. So we're created in his image, but must be saved, born again, and then can be joint heirs with Christ. So verse seven, thou madest him a little lower than the angels, Thou crownest him with glory and honor and didst set him over the works of thy hands. So the word a little here, thou madest him, that is Jesus, speaking about Jesus, a little lower than the angels. It's not saying lower in rank necessarily. It's a little is for a time, for a season. The word a little in the Greek, the most fitting definition I could find for it is of time, a short time, or for a little while. So Jesus, when he took on humanity for 32, 33 years, for a short while, he was a little lower than the angels in, in human form, but yet fully God in an authority of them. It's a crazy thing that it could just blow your mind to think about it if you really sat and thought about it for a while. But the Lord placed Jesus for a little while lower than the angels. His sacrifice was complete, because he was resurrected. So you know because he was resurrected that the sacrifice was accepted and fully complete. There's nothing that needed to be added to it. If, and, and this hits on this in the New Testament, but without the resurrection, we don't have anything. You know, it would have meant it was all for nothing, basically, is the argument the Lord builds. But because it was complete, he's crowned with glory and honor, and he has dominion over the works of the Lord. Praise God for that. In verse 8, 
Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. So all things will be put under the feet of Jesus, but they aren't quite yet. And that's, this is one of my favorite verses in Hebrews because it's a promise of no matter what you see in this world going on, take hope that it will all fall under Jesus eventually. And no matter what the world tells you that you can't gather in church, you can't sing, you can't worship, you can't praise because you can't, you can't be close to each other and sing praises to the Lord, you know, no matter what the, the world is doing to attack the church, there's going to come a point that it stops. And that's the hope that we all have to look forward to and to press on for. So you've got to have that eternal focus of ruling with Jesus. You don't see it yet, but take faith, it will happen. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. You don't see it yet, but everything that is the substance of all that we hope for is Jesus. That's the point. So that is what we have to look forward to. So let's look at Psalms 8 for a minute. Because uh, verses 6, 7, and 8 in Hebrews 2 is all quoted from Psalms 8, verses 4 through 6. So Psalms 8, 1 opens up with, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Now you could go to like Psalm 91, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. We talked about that a few weeks ago. Psalms 8, 2, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength, because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the avenger. This is an interesting term in the Bible, the avenger, still the avenger. So this is linked to the cities of refuge. And if, you, if you've never studied the cities of refuge, it's an incredible study. The whole thing speaks about Jesus. So our place in Jesus is a city of refuge. Joshua 20, verse 3, that the slayer that killeth any person unawares and unwittingly may flee thither, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. See, there is this whole concept. Now, that's just one verse, but there's this whole concept through uh, Numbers, Deuteronomy, uh, Leviticus, Joshua, you see it, of these cities of refuge. There were three on the west side of the Jordan and three on the east side of the Jordan. So if you remember, there were two and a half tribes that wanted to take their inheritance east of the Jordan. And so God placed three cities of refuge on the east side for them and three on the west. The cities had to be open continuously. The gates had to be open all the time. You couldn't shut the gates to these six cities. And which meant there, and there always had to be a clear path to get to them. The bridges had to be cleared. The trails had to be cleared. And the point was that if you committed second-degree murder, that you had a place to flee to before the avenger of blood took you out. That was the point. So if you were, and one of the examples that the Bible gives is, say you're in the forest with a a brother and you're chopping down a tree and the axe head flies off your axe and hits him in the head and kills him. It was a second-degree murder, meaning you didn't have intent to kill him, but because it was second-degree murder, you had access to a place of refuge. See, the avenger of blood, his next of kin, had the responsibility to take you out. There, was, there were no prisons in Israel. You just, they dealt with issues right away. 
And so the Avenger of Blood, that's a title of the next of kin, would hunt you down, and he had every right to kill you unless you got to the city of refuge. And if you got to the city of refuge and you stayed in the walls until the high priest in Jerusalem died, then you could be set free, and the Avenger of Blood could not touch you. And that whole thing is a model of Jesus, because you think about what does the high priest in Jerusalem dying have to do with a guy that's east of the Jordan fleeing to the city for his life? Well, has everything. It's all a model of Jesus. Because what, what did Jesus say on the cross? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Which means it was second-degree murder. Which means because of that, we all have access to a city of refuge. And because you have access to it, if you flee there until the high priest dies, who's our high priest? We looked at that a while back, Jesus, until he dies, then you can be set free. And so the whole thing is a model of, of the salvation that the Lord offers. Forgive them, for they not, know not what they do. And that's what the, this means in Psalms 8, verse 2, still the avenger. In other words, give you time to get to that city of refuge, to run to it. So in Psalms 8, verse 3, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the sun, which thou hast ordained. So look at these middle verses here. Right in the middle of Psalms 8, verses 4 through 8, this was, this was something that I heard. There's a prophet that I love to listen to every week. His name is Robin, uh, Robin Bullock. And he brought this up some months ago in a, in a message he was doing. And I had never really thought about this. In Psalms 8, he views this as a discourse between Satan and God before man was created. And I thought that was such an interesting take I had never thought about it that way, but look at it with, you guys take Acts 17, 11 in mind and go see if this fits in your mind. But Psalms 8, verse 4, from his perspective, this is Satan talking to God before Adam is ever even created. What is man that thou art mindful of him and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea. So if you think about it, what, what he was saying is, when you look at that war between Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, when Satan rebels, the angels fall with him, earth is judged, and then God is speaking of this man that he's going to create that's going to take back dominion of the earth. And Satan is sitting there going, what is this man? Who is this man that you're talking about, that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you would visit him? It's this whole discourse. And, and so his point was, that it's from this point on that Satan has starts working on this plan of how can I corrupt man? How can I get after man? And that's why when you see him attack Adam and in Genesis 3. But I think it was a really interesting perspective he had on it. So just take it to the Lord, see if it fits in your mind. But in Psalms 8, 8, look at this verse again. The fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas. And the Psalms 8 closes with, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth. There's a guy named Matthew Fontaine Murray. He was a strong Christian. He read Psalms 8, verse 8, 
and he set out on a lifelong journey to find the paths of the sea. So he read this verse. He was in the, na- the Naval Academy. He read this verse, whatsoever passeth through the paths of the seas, and he spent his entire life studying and trying to find what are the paths in the seas. And it's amazing. One verse changed the whole trajectory of this man's life. He, he lived from 1806 to 1873. He served in the Navy from 1825 to 1861, and then 1861 to 1865, where he eventually became a commander. And he's known as the father of oceanography. And at the U.S. Naval Academy, there's actually a hall named after him, Maury Hall. It's named after him. Now, if you look him up, if you just Google him and look at articles or whatever you can find on him, a lot of them will not mention that he was he spent his whole life digging this up because he was a strong believer in the Lord and read Psalms 8.8. They leave that part out. They just say, well, he's this great guy that did all this research and, and discovered the paths in the seas. Well, if you, if you really dig into it and figure out why did he do that, it's because he read Psalms 8.8. 8. And when you study his maps, his maps are still used at the Naval Academy today. But he discovered there are hot and cold water currents all underneath the sea. And so there are roads that you can actually travel for shipping that make you get somewhere quicker because the tide and the current takes that path through the sea. And because of that, what used to be, you know, when they would set off on voyages from Europe or wherever and travel the oceans, what used to take weeks to get from Spain to wherever, Florida or Maine or South America, they were able to cut it down into days because of these paths in the seas. And he ended up saving a lot of, obviously, time, energy. He opened up trade by the sea because of this, uh, really trade by sea. And those are some pictures of some of his maps that he created on the right and the upper left. The one on the bottom left is just one that somebody, somebody in modern times took his old maps and just created these different paths that go through the ocean. But I thought that was so fascinating that one verse changed this entire guy's life because he believed in God's word. There was obviously no evidence in it at all. You know, at the time in the 1850s when he read this, there was no evidence that there were paths in the sea whatsoever. But because God's word said it, he set out on a journey to discover it and find how is that true, Lord? And he spent his whole life, and he's got books that they still use in the Naval Academy called, um, again, his name is, they call him the father of oceanography. But you can find his books if, you've, if you know anybody that's been in the Navy. They probably had one of his books. The one, the one verse that is yet to be discovered in Job, he talks about when God talks about the treasure of snow that's been laid up for the day of battle, Remember when we looked at that when we were studying Revelation, how those, those two-ton um, two hailstones will fall from heaven. These 200-pound hailstones are going to fall from heaven. Well, in Job, in Job, God declares there's somewhere in the earth that has that treasury of snow laid up, that treasure of hailstones. And I haven't found someone that's willing to just dive off and search that out for their entire life's journey. But if anyone's interested, let me know. We'll go take, we'll take some expeditions Ryan might be excited about that. We could go up to Greenland or something. We'll find it. But that's, that's pretty amazing when you think about God saying that's out there somewhere. He has that laid up in store for the day of battle. And you just got to go find it. 
pretty, pretty cool how the, the Lord puts all those little treasures in his words. So the earth's subjection to man, you know, when you think about what, what I really want you all to take away from this is that you have a place in the kingdom if you continue to press on for the Lord. That is the point. You've got to run this race. This is not, this is the hardest marathon you will ever undertake is a lifelong walk with the Lord because it takes submission, it takes time, it takes humility, it takes a heart that's willing out of obedience to do what he asks you to do, no matter how radical it is. Uh, He might ask you in the middle of a world pandemic and shutdown to start a church, I have no idea. But (laughs) he, he did that with a lot of us and you can definitely see he had a reason in mind for it. And so my, the call to action, I always love to close with these calls to action, but to get into the word of God, it's time for the church to stand up and take this fight back to the enemy because for too many decades, we've allowed all of this to happen. You know, we've allowed, the church has set idle and allowed these people to indoctrinate our children in schools, to fill seats in government, to write our laws in city council. You know, it starts local in the church. And if you can stand up and declare the word of God and stand on the truth of God's word, people will start to notice and they'll start following and they'll finally realize, oh, there is somebody out there that wants to fight back. I thought I was the only one. And eventually that builds momentum and people will get together and the Lord will bless that. So building your faith, the weapons of your warfare, Hebrews 11, 1, it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11:6. why is it important? Because it's impossible to please God without it. And then Acts 7, or I'm sorry, how do you get it? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So you've got to start with that and do it daily from Acts 17, 11. But when you, when you start chasing after God, there's all these strongholds you may have in your life that I've got a slide here in a minute that the Lord showed me something while we were out in Colorado. But all of you have something in your life before you were saved or even maybe after you were saved that you either have torn down completely or just partially when you're walking with him. And if it's been a partial teardown of a stronghold in your life, you are putting your life, your family's lives, your children's lives, your walk with the Lord at risk. And that's the whole point and why Joshua didn't listen to the Lord. He has that there as, a, as an example for us. Remember Romans 15, for all things that are written aforetime, were written for our learning, that we through the patience in the, of the scriptures might have strength and hope. So these strongholds, remember God told him, kill everything in these certain areas. And the three areas he didn't listen were the, the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, and the Golan Heights. And if you look at the Jerusalem Post or any news over in the Middle East, at any time during the week, you're gonna see something on those three areas because they didn't tear it down completely. And so God... God told them right there in Numbers 33, 55, if ye will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which ye let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein ye dwell. See, God predicted it all the way back in Numbers and it's thousands of years later and they're still struggling with those three areas in their own land because they didn't obey him at the beginning. 
And the same is true in your life. If you don't obey him from the beginning, you're going to have issues in your walk with the Lord. You're going to have things that are pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and that will vex you continually. You've got to tear all of that down. And so think about what stronghold in your life has God told you to eradicate and just go home and ask him. He's so faithful to tell you, just ask him, Lord, is this totally destroyed or is there something else that I need to submit here? Because he will absolutely tell you. So you cannot stand, now you can't stand against the enemies when you have something accursed in your lives. This was, the Lord showed me this while we were out on on the mountains last week. But in Joshua 7, therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turn their backs before their enemies because they were accursed. Neither will I be with you anymore, except you destroy the accursed from among you. Up, sanctify the people and say, sanctify yourselves against the mor- tomorrow. For thus saith the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in the midst of thee. O Israel, thou canst stand before thine enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. So again, it's a call to give it all to him. You can't stand against the enemy if you have something accursed in your life. If you're hiding something in your closet, if you've got something in your life that you haven't submitted to him, you're going to be a casualty of war. That's what he's saying here in Joshua. You've got to give it all to him. So if you're watching this or if you're here today and you need the Lord, you need to get born again, and then you need to get baptized by the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, and take this war to the enemy. Take back what's been stolen. And it's really simple. It's Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. It's that simple. And then Isaiah 1, 18, come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. And it's that simple. You confess with your mouth and then everything that you did in your life It has changed from scarlet and crimson to white as wool. It's that simple. And then the whole point is, how do you live for him after that? And going on a lifelong journey of finding out what does the Lord have for you in your life? So if you've got any prayer requests, if you need salvation questions, anything, you can email us there. And with that, I'll close us in prayer. Lord, we thank you so much again for this time together. God, I pray that you would Just as Mason said, let your word be received on good soil. God, let people take a call to action and a sense of urgency because, Lord, time is short. Lord, no matter how old we are, life is so short. It is just a blip on the radar compared to eternity. And, Lord, some of us may have 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, 60 years left, but, God, They need to be spent chasing after you until you either bring us home or you call us home in the rapture. And we thank you for that promise. God, thank you for being a king that chases after us and that leaves the 99 to fight for the one. You are such an amazing God. You are such an amazing king and savior. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to all of us if there's anything in our lives that we need to uproot and get out and push out that door to have a stronger relationship with you just like the new song that you wrote 
through Mason and Chris and Kelly. I don't have the time. Lord, time is short. And we thank you that in your word, you call us to number our days, reckon our days. Lord, I, pr- I do pray that all of us would do that and get urgent about racing after you and getting serious about conversing with you daily, reading your word daily, strengthening our families with your word. Lord, thank you for the call that you have on this church. Be with all of those that are out traveling today and couldn't be here. God, I pray that you would protect them as they travel home. God, I pray that you'd be with all of those that are with their kids in different events and everything that's going on, Lord. Through the busyness of life, I pray that you would give us time. Lord, give us time and space to spend with you. Let us take that call serious to carve out time and let it be easy, Lord, as we start to tie that time to you, that God, it becomes available more and that you slow things down supernaturally and give people a chance to spend an abundant amount of time with you daily. We love you, Lord, and all of these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Before we go, just one thing. If you haven't paid attention, I'm sure all of you know what's going on in Ukraine and Russia and and all of that. Uh, One thing I do, when all of that started, uh, Randy could tell you, my heart was so heavy for the believers over there. So no matter what is happening, geopolitically and the war going on in Ukraine, no matter the reason and no matter who's behind it or what's driving it or not driving it, there are brothers and sisters over there losing their lives and people on the run with their children trying to find refuge and safety. And and you could argue what's really happening all day. And that And what I want to do, I want all of you to keep in mind, please look past that and see the people. See the people that are that are being hunted, the people that are that are running for their lives, that are trying to escape with their children. And the Holy Spirit, whenever I was whenever this all started a couple weeks ago, I I just I was so heavy for them. And so he gave me a prayer that to pray for his people and to pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate what streets to cross, what turns to make, what train to get on whether to drive, whether to to get out on foot with their kids, however they're trying to move, that the Holy Spirit would lead them and show them and illuminate that path for them, that they wouldn't take the wrong turn. If you see any of those videos, you know, there's, there's just bombs going off everywhere. There's tanks everywhere. There's men walking down the streets with guns everywhere. Um, it's a dangerous time, right, just to even try to move. And so... What I want to do real quick before we leave is just pray for them and pray that the pray together in agreement that the Holy Spirit would lead his people out the right way or tell them he may call them to stay and stay sheltered. He's got something else for them. But that the Holy Spirit would guide that because I can't imagine waking up in the middle of the night and all of a sudden trying to figure out what do I do with my children? How do I get out of here? Do I What do we do? You know, I think all of us would just find some land somewhere and go somewhere probably. But <laughs> But let's just let's pray that over them because there's a lot of people over there that that need the Holy Spirit's protection for them. And I've heard a lot of different prophets and great people talk about what the future of Ukraine holds. And it could be something really, really radical that God is doing over there. So just pay attention to it and don't lose sight that he's still in control. 
He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly what he's allowing. And we, our part right now is to go and join them in prayer and pray over his people that, that need his Holy Spirit. So Lord, we just thank you so much for the church in Ukraine and Russia. Lord, there are so many Jewish roots and people there that are deep, deep followers of you. And God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would lead all of those people on where they should go, what street to cross, what turn to make, whether they drive, whether they get on a train, whether they try to make it to an airport somewhere, Lord, wherever you have for them as a place, a city of refuge, God, I pray that you would move them and lead them by your Holy Spirit. Do not let any of your people fall victim to this. God, protect their livelihoods, protect their children, and place your hedge of protection supernaturally around them, Father. Place it it supernaturally around them and guide them by the light of your Holy Spirit, just like you did in the wilderness for the children of Israel. Guide them, God, by a pillar of cloud in the day, separating them from the enemies, and a pillar of fire by night to guard them from their enemies and to light their way. Lord, be with them and be with your people and speak to them in this hour. Give them comfort and hope. Lord, give them words from your word. Give them direct words and revelation on your future for them and their nation. God, let them be encouraged by what you're doing and what you're working in their lives. God, you have a plan through this. So let them find complete joy in running wherever you tell them to run, Lord. Comfort them and strengthen them, Lord. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen.